Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week in our 53rd session, we are looking at Chapter 10 of Book 4 of The Two Towers. We're looking at the very end of The Two Towers, one of the pivotal turning points in the entire book. And we are left with a situation so dire that in a letter to his son, Professor Tolkien expressed significant doubt that even the author would be able to extricate Frodo from the circumstances in which he finds himself right at the end of this week's reading. But that's probably enough about Frodo. We don't really need to talk that much about Frodo, in fact, because we're really going to be focused on the hero of the Lord of the Rings. This week, a lot of Samwise Gamgee, a great deal to discuss. Before we get into that, a quick scheduling announcement. Some of you may have noticed that the Point North Media website has been down now for a few days. I am still frantically fixing things behind the scenes. It didn't break. This is part of a long-awaited and essential update, which is in the manner of long-awaited and essential updates, taking far longer than I expected. But the website will be back up later today, along with the latest episode of Dear Mr. Potter and the uh, Point North one-shot that I recorded last night studying the novel version of The Princess Bride, which was an absolute blast. I had a great deal of pleasure uh, giving that session last night and talking about The Princess Bride with everyone who managed to make it to the live session. So those podcasts will be going out, as of course will the podcast version of there and back again. My apologies for the inconvenience. While we're talking about podcasts and scheduling, though, let's talk about next week. As I say, this reading takes us to the very end of The Two Towers, and we're going to pause to draw breath before we launch ourselves into The Return of the King. Next week, I'm not going to give a live session for There and Back Again, but I am going to put out a pre-recorded podcast in which I address some of your wonderful questions. If you have questions about The Lord of the Rings up to this point in general, but more specifically about The Two Towers, and you would like me to answer them on next week's pre-recorded show, then get in touch. You can email me pointnorthmedia at gmail.com or you can stop by the Point North Media forum, pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. That forum has been up and running and working beautifully, even though the main site is down. So you can still head on over there to connect with other Point North listeners and other Tolkien fans. With all of that said then, let's get into this week's reading. In fact, we're not even going to pick up with chapter 10 because I had two slides left over from last week's reading right there at the end of chapter 9, right? As we're facing off against Shilob in her lair, let us see what happens to Frodo and Sam. Hardly had Sam hidden the light of the star glass when she came. A little way ahead and to his left, he saw suddenly, issuing from a black hole of shadow under the cliff, the most loathly shape he had ever beheld, horrible beyond the horror of an evil dream. Most like a spider, she was, but huger than the great hunting beasts and more terrible than they because of the evil purpose in her remorseless eyes. Those same eyes that she had thought daunted and defeated. There, excuse me, those same eyes that he had thought daunted and defeated. There they were lit with fell light again, clustering in her outthrust head. Great horns she had, and behind her short, stalk-like neck was her huge, swollen body, a vast, bloated bag, swaying and sagging between her legs. Its great bulk was black, blotched with livid marks, but the belly underneath was pale and luminous and gave forth a stench. Her legs were bent, with great knobbed joints high above her back, and hairs that stuck out like steel spines, and at each leg's end there was a claw. As soon as she had squeezed her soft, squelching body and its folded limbs out of the upper exit from her lair, she moved with a horrible speed, now running on her creaking legs, now making a sudden bound. She was between Sam and his master. Either she did not see Sam, or she avoided him for the moment as the bearer of the light, and fixed all her intent upon one prey, upon Frodo, bereft of his file, running heedless up the path, unaware yet of his peril. Swiftly he ran, but Shelob was swifter. In a few leaps she would have him. Sam gasped and gathered all his remaining breath to shout, Look out behind you! he yelled. Look out, master! I'm... 
But suddenly his cry was stifled. A long, clammy hand went over his mouth and another caught him by the neck while something wrapped itself about his leg. Taken off his guard, he toppled backwards into the arms of his attacker. Got him, hissed Gollum in his ear. At last, my precious, we've got him. Yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one. She'll get the other. Oh, yes, Shelob will get him, not Smeagol. He promised he wouldn't hurt Master at all. But he's got you, you nasty, filthy little sneak. He spat on Sam's neck. The description of the attack of Shelob, the description of Shelob herself, is, of course, utterly, utterly grotesque. And we have an interesting point of differentiation here, an interesting point of specificity from Professor Tolkien. I mentioned last time that there is a certain criticism associated with Shelob that she isn't, in fact, very much like a spider, because spiders do not have compound eyes and spiders do not have stingers, but that's okay because Shelob isn't even really a spider, most like a spider she was. That's the description that the narrator gives us. She is spider-like, she is spider-esque, but not quite a spider. Something far worse, possessed of this stench of decay, this 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 putrid air surrounding her, unho- unhealthy and unholy. Here she is, most reminiscent of all the things that we've seen of late, of the dead marshes, in fact. There is something which stands in opposition to life itself, embodied here in the shadow beneath the cliff, and now, of course, leaping at Frodo. We also see here the intercession of Gollum. Gollum taking his revenge on Sam, a personal kind of revenge. And we see Gollum, too, honoring his promise. Oh, yes, Shelob will get him, not Smeagol. He promised he won't hurt Master at all. Still, in a sense as Frodo predicted he would be, bound by the promise that he made upon the ring. It's unclear whether he is capable of taking action against Frodo, whether he is capable of defying the promise that he made, or whether, despite his protestations, despite his eagerness to find some legalistic loophole that will excuse his behavior, whether he is still bound by that promise that he made upon the ring, whether the ring still compels him. Unfortunately, Frodo didn't demand a promise regarding Sam, but he's got you, you nasty, filthy little sneak. And in that last word, I see something genuinely heartbreaking. I see something that is is enormously touching because sneak, of course, is the word that Sam uses when he shatters that moment of redemption, uh, which Gollum is at least approaching. I had a little bit of discussion via email, actually, with a couple of different listeners about whether or not Gollum was in that moment redeemed or whether he was simply approaching redemption, whether there was a hope of redemption, whether he had embraced the light or was just standing in or even just near the light in that moment when he sees Frodo with his head on Sam's lap as the two of them sleep. And I'm not sure that I have a definitive response to that. I'm not sure that I can say with absolute authority, yes, Gollum was in that moment redeemed. And the argument would be, I suppose, that if Gollum were redeemed, then no words of Sam could hurt him because that would indicate a second fall. If he had returned to the light and then when assaulted by Sam verbally, he retreats back into the shadows, that is a worse sin, arguably, and certainly a less tragic one because it is something that happens out of choice. So while I can accept that Gollum isn't perhaps fixed in that moment, Gollum isn't perhaps restored in that moment, he is at least open to the possibility. And we know that because the narrator tells us that if the two hobbits had beheld him, they would have seen an old hobbit. He is restored to his personhood in a way that he hasn't been since he took the ring from Deagle back on the banks of the Anduin 500 years ago. Gollum has now fallen irredeemably into shadow. The last hope, the hope that Gandalf talked about all the way back in the second chapter of this entire book has now been extinguished. There is now 
no hope. No hope for his redemption, but still hope for the part that he may play. You'll remember that when Gandalf talked about Gollum all the way back in chapter 2, he offered us two explanations. He offered us the personal, empathetic reason for, for justifying the existence of Gollum or for preserving the existence of Gollum at this point. There's little hope, but that's not no hope. And also he offered the mystical perspective on Gollum. I have a sense that he still has a part to play for good or ill. I am not going to intrude on the unfolding story. I am not going to silence a voice that I take to be a part of the song of history. Let's see how this plays out. Let's see what happens and trust in the goodness of the world. Trust in that eucatastrophic impulse. Trust in the divine wind that turns all things aright in the end, even through suffering, and in fact, mostly through suffering. So Sam manages to throw himself backwards. He takes Gollum off balance. Gollum scurries away, and Sam finds himself now dealing with the aftermath. Sword in hand, Sam went after him. For the moment, he had forgotten everything else but the red fury in his brain and the desire to kill Gollum, but before he could overtake him, Gollum was gone. Then, as a dark hole stood before him and the stench came out to meet him, like a clap of thunder, the thought of Frodo and the monster smote upon Sam's mind. He spun around and rushed wildly up the path, calling and calling his master's name. He was too late. So far, Gollum's plot had succeeded. And that is how we conclude chapter 9. And it's interesting to see Sam in this moment consumed by this kind of vengeance, consumed by this fury. For the moment, he had forgotten everything else but the red fury in his brain and the desire to kill Gollum. This is, in a very unhobbit-like register, this is far more the kind of attribution that we would associate with, you know, Germanic and Teutonic heroes of myth. This is the kind of thing that that overcomes great heroes of, of Norse mythology, too, you know, of Anglo-Saxon mythology, really of, of all the mythologies which inspired Professor Tolkien in the creation of his secondary world here. This berserker rage that comes on Sam is suddenly shattered, this intrusion, this hard intrusion. Then as the dark hole stood before him and the stench came out to meet him, like a clap of thunder, the thought of Frodo and the monster smote upon Sam's mind. He has forgotten. He has lost his duty in this moment. And this is one of the things that is going to have huge significance, huge bearing on Sam as we move through the last chapter of this book. Because Sam's sense of himself, his sense of his duty, his sense of his loyalty, well, let's move forward and explore all of these things. It's uh, it's really interesting. Seastar is calling out too, I like the strike-by-strike -strike description of Sam and Gollum's fight, something refreshingly rare in Lord of the Rings. It absolutely is, right? We generally don't get... I suppose what we would think of in a cinematic sense as a choreographed fight sequence. We don't generally get, then he ducked and parried and thrust, or if we get that, that is all that we get, and it is left to the reader's imagination. But usually when we're dealing with combat, the narrative perspective actually moves quite a distance back. We generally elevate into the heroic mode or... or de-escalate things into a more personal and confused and, and intimate mode, I suppose. It would be an interesting thing, actually, to look at the way that fight scenes are handled throughout the book specifically. And hey, we'll have plenty of opportunity to do that as we get into Return of the King, too. Um, interesting. Lynn says, I have wondered that Gollum talks about Smeagol as himself. Does that mean he integrated both his sides in the dark? Yes, that is how I take it. That is how I take it. That is clearly the Gollum persona, right? Everything about that, that voice, let me actually skip backward to that passage. Got him, his Gollum in his ear. At last, my precious, we got him. Yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one. She gets the other. Oh, yes, Sheila will get him, not Smeagol. He promised he won't hurt Master at all, but he's got you, you nasty, filthy little sneak. 
Yes, we are playing the pronoun game here with Gollum again, as we did before when we looked at the division in his persona, when we studied that distinction between the slinker and stinker personalities, as Sam describes them, between Gollum and Smeagol, as we might somewhat less accurately describe them. Yes, I take this to be proof of his dark reunification. There is now no inner conflict in Gollum. He is restored. He has been made whole in the worst possible way. The light has gone out of Gollum here, and now he is all green fire, not pale light. But yes, absolutely, Lynn. I take that to be a very good, uh, a very good observation there. <laughs> Shane being a little wry here, quote, Legolas threw his shield down the staircase and rode it like a surfboard. Yeah, I can't find that in the book. Yeah, it's weird how that's been omitted. I, I don't know. It, it's clear that Peter Jackson must have had access to a, a special little uh, diagram, a, a crayon diagram that uh, that J.R.R. Tolkien had written at some point. Yes, I like that too much. Oh, Tom asking, which of the authors of the Red Book would be most likely to add action sequences? Gosh, instinctively... I would say Bilbo, right? Bilbo seems to still have in his desire to tell a story. And there is a distinction, I think, between the desires of, of the authors of the Red Book, right? The Red Book is composed in largest part by Bilbo and Frodo with some additions by Sam. When Bilbo is writing this story, it is a story. It is there and back again. That's the original concept for his book. It's the accounting of his adventures going to the Lonely Mountain and then returning. And the tale grows in the telling, as Tolkien's tale grew in the telling. But in that telling, it transitions into something else. It transitions into something greater. It transitions into a history in exactly the same way as the fairy tale adventure story of The Hobbit transitions into the mythical history of the Lord of the Rings, right? There's still a compelling personal story. We are still anchored in these events and anchored by these characters, but the mode is very different. The tone is very different. And I see that represented in the authors of the Red Book. I think Bilbo writes the swashbuckling adventure story and large parts of the Lord of the Rings too. Frodo adds, I think, the deeper perspective, the deeper history, the deeper thought, the slower thought. And certainly I would argue that Frodo is responsible for many of the more philosophically inclined passages that we get throughout The Lord of the Rings. And Sam then adding, I would say, finer detail, more personal detail, giving personal accounts of Frodo, particularly Frodo's heroism and greatness and stature and courage and value and worth, right? These are the things which Sam values the most, I'm sure. But that's a really interesting question, yeah. Yeah, um, yes, exactly. Shane, uh, Shane says in the chat, Sam would not share a story about how awesome he is like this. No, I completely agree. This, I am certain, is written by Frodo after the fact, after Frodo and Sam have been reunited and spent a long afternoon talking about, hey, remember that day? Remember remember passing through Kareth Ungle? That was, that was a tough day. Tough day, it turns out. In fact, I would argue that almost all of this, this upcoming chapter, this, this passage that we're studying this week, has been written by Frodo, though I do wonder about some of the intrusions that we get of Sam, because some of the attributed dialogue that we see from Sam is very remonstrative, right? It, it is it is damning of his own inadequacy, and I'm not sure that Frodo would see him in that way. Of course, these lines of authorial intent and, and authorial purpose are impossible to divine. We, we can only speculate in this regard. Let's get into our, uh, let's get into chapter 10 here and, uh, <laughs> and look at this moment of Sam's profound heroism here as he fights against Shelob. And if you had mentioned right back at the beginning of the book that, yeah, no, Sam's the gardener. He's Frodo's manservant. He's basically going to be reliable and dauntless and, and pretty great. He's also going to be the voice of the common person throughout most of the book. Um, oh, he is going to kill a giant spider monster, like, or at least wound a giant spider monster. And he is going to be compared to Turin and Baron right there at the end of the book. 
I'm not sure that we would have bought that back in the Fellowship of the Ring, but I absolutely buy it now. Frodo was lying face upward on the ground and the monster was bending over him, so intent upon her victim that she took no heed of Sam and his cries until he was close at hand. As he rushed up, he saw that Frodo was already bound in cords, wound about him from ankle to shoulder, and the monster with her great forelegs was beginning half to lift, half to drag his body away. On the near side of him lay, gleaming on the ground, his elven blade, where it had fallen useless from his grasp. Sam did not wait to wonder what was to be done, or whether he was brave or loyal or filled with rage. He sprang forward with a yell and seized his master's sword in his left hand. Then he charged. No onslaught more fierce was ever seen in the savage world of beasts, where some desperate small creature armed with little teeth alone will spring upon a tower of horn and hide that stands above its fallen mate. Disturbed as if by out some gloating dream by his small yell, she turned slowly, the dreadful malice of her glance upon him. But almost before she was aware that a fury was upon her greater than any she had known in countless years, the shining sword bit upon her foot and shore away the claw. Sam sprang in, inside the arches of her legs, and with a quick upthrust of his other hand, stabbed at the clustered eyes upon the, her lowered head. One great eye went dark. Now the miserable creature was right under her, for the moment out of the reach of her sting and of her claws, her vast belly was above him with its putrid light, and the stench of it almost smote him down. Still his fury held for one more blow, and before she could sink upon him, smothering him and all his little impudence of courage, he slashed the bright elven blade across her with desperate strength. But Shelob was not as dragons are. No softer spot had she save only her eyes. Nobbed and pitted with corruption was her age-old hide, and ever thickened from within with layer on layer of evil growth. The blade scored it with a dreadful gash, but those hideous folds could not be pierced by any strength of man, not though elf or dwarf should forge the steel or the hand of Baron or of Turin wield it. She yielded to the stroke, then heaved up the great bag of her belly high above Sam's head, poison frothed and bubbled from the wound. Now splaying her legs, she drove her huge bulk down on him again too soon, for Sam was still upon his feet, and dropping his own sword with both hands he held the elven blade point upward, fending off that ghastly roof, and so Shelob, with the driving force of her own cruel will, with strength greater than any warrior's hand, thrust herself upon a bitter spike. Deep, deep it pricked, as Sam was crushed slowly to the ground. While we're talking about action sequences and fight scenes, this is, for my money, the best one. This is, for my money, as good as Tolkien's fight choreography gets. It is, of course, completely simple, but it does what great fight scenes, what great action scenes should do. It connects from the most physical layer, from the most transparent layer of plot. This is what is happening now in the course of our story. Let's see what happens next. It connects from that superficial layer all the way down to the deepest thematic levels. What is happening to Shelob here? Well, she is being consumed and corrupted by her own evil. She is being violated here by the consequence of her own evil. In the first instance, she is distracted from Sam's attack because she is gloating upon her prey here, because she is, is wrapping up Frodo in her cords, eager to drag him away and to feast upon him later. So she is, in the first instance, distracted by greed. Then in the second instance, Sam gets inside her, her area Area of attack, I suppose, because she is simply so bloated. She is so bloated because her desire is always to consume. This 
noisome putrid belly that hangs beneath her bowed out legs is the consequence of that greed, is the consequence of that malice, is the consequence of that evil. And then her desire to crush this, this impudent courage, to, to, to squelch this little creature that has, has dared to stand against her, that is what drives her body onto the blade of the sword. And so Sheila, with the driving force of her own will, uh, of her own cruel will, with strength greater than any warrior's hand, thrust herself upon a bitter spike. Deep, deep it pricked as Sam was crushed slowly to the ground. It is her desire to kill Sam, to smother Sam, to do so with her own uh, her own horrid and putrid mass that is her undoing. Evil begets its own undoing. Sam couldn't do this. Those hideous folds could not be pierced by the strength of man, not though elf or dwarf should forge the steel or the hand of Baron or of Turin wield it. Right? We've had reference to Baron and Turin before. Again, parenthetically, no one reading the book at this time knew who they... Well, we know a little bit about Baron, of course, because we have Aragorn's song back at Weathertop, but we know almost nothing about Turin Turambar at all, like almost nothing. But he is listed among the most honored elf friends. He is, is listed among the great heroes of old, and the invocation of the name here is enough. We don't need to know anything about him because all we're being told is that the great heroes couldn't do it. No one can pierce Shelob's hide except for the malice and fury of Shelob herself. And of course, there we get the, uh, we get this ironic turn. And this is, gosh, this is one of these moments where Tolkien is kind of, of celebrating his own secondary creation here, right? Because we get the, Sheila was not as dragons are, no softer spot had she save only her eyes. Hey, do dragons have soft and vulnerable underbellies? Well, of course they do. This is true of Sigurd and Fafnir in myth. This is true, of course, of the slaying of Smaug in The Hobbit. But it is also true of Turin and Glaurung in The Silmarillion, which Tolkien knew, right? It's no coincidence that he makes this reference and then makes the Turin reference. This, minor spoilers for The Silmarillion, is how Turin kills Glaurung, right? This is how that fight goes down. This is how another dragon is slain in the world of, of Middle-earth. But nobody knew that. No one knew that at the time. So Tolkien is instead making a reference which works for readers of The Hobbit, works for readers who are familiar with myth, works even for readers who are familiar with none of those things and who are just coming into this story and looking for this evocative prose. <coughs> Sheila was not as dragons are. No softer spot had she save only her eyes. There's no... You don't need a deeper layer of connection in order to understand the point that the narrator is making here, but if you have it, then it resonates all the way down. It is... An absolutely staggering uh, piece here. So much love for Sam happening in the chat. Yes. Uh, Lily saying, didn't Smaug only have a soft spot because he had lost a scale? Yes, that's true. But he had lost a scale because of his long years uh, on the, the mound of gold in Erebor. Again, kind of greed being his own downfall there, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, let me scroll back. No, we're good. Okay. I think everyone's, everyone's up to date. We've got everything working. So this is how we turn the tide against Shilob. And Shilob is, is wounded, not slain, but wounded and retreats from the battlefield. We've got to get to uh, Elbereth Gothoniel here. This is gorgeous. Okay. So, so Shelob is there wounded, but this is not what sends her from the fight. Even as Sam himself crouched, looking at her, seeing his death in her eyes, a thought came to him, as if some remote voice had spoken, and he fumbled in his breast with his left hand and found what he sought. Cold and hard and solid it seemed to his touch in a phantom world of horror, the file of Galadriel. Galadriel, he said faintly, and he heard voices far off but clear, the crying of the elves as they walked under the stars in the beloved shadows of the Shire and the music of the elves as it came through his sleep in the hall of fire in the house of Elrond. Gilthoniel, uh, Elbereth! 
And then his tongue was loosed, and his voice cried in a language which he did not know. Elbereth Gilthoniel, Omenapalandiliel, Len... I'm going to get tripped up on my cinderin again. Lenalonsi di... I'm not sure how to pronounce that, that NG there, actually. I should have looked this up beforehand. Nyurathos, I guess. Di Nyurathos. Linalansi di Nyurathos. Atiranin fanuilos. Forgive my cinderin. It's not as good as it should be. And with that, he staggered to his feet and was Samwise the Hobbit, Hamfast's son, again. Now come, you filth, he cried. You've hurt my master, you brute, and you'll pay for it. We're going on, but we'll settle with you first. Come on and taste it again. Elbereth Gilthonio. So in the last chapter, we saw Frodo too speak spontaneous Elvish when he was wielding the file of Galadriel. Back in the last chapter, Frodo says, Aya erinda lelenia na kalima. That is a Quenya phrase, not a Sindarin phrase, right? These are two elven languages. In the Quenyan, Frodo's exposition, uh, Frodo's cry, I don't know what word I was struggling toward there, but Frodo's cry in the last chapter translates as, Hail Eärendil, brightest of stars, as we discussed last time. Tolkien actually offered a translation of this fragment of the Elbereth Gilthoniel song, the poem that we get here. And the, the translation that Tolkien gives is Elbereth Starkindler, that's the Gilthoniel uh, Elbereth, Starkindler of Elbereth. From heaven gazing afar to thee, I cry now in the shadow of death, O look toward me ever white. This is something awfully close to a prayer. This is something perilously close to a prayer and surprising all the more for that. It is the invocation of a greater power, the invocation of an external power. Um, I, I want to pay close attention to the reference that Sam makes here. Galadriel, he said faintly, and he heard far, voices far off but clear. The crying of the elves as they walked under the stars in the beloved shadows of the Shire and the music of the elves as it came through his sleep in the hall of fire in the house of Elrond. Hey, previously on Elbereth Gilthoniel, let's take a look at this slide. These are two of the references that we've had to, uh, to Elbereth in the course of the book so far. The first comes from the Song of Gildor and the other elves driving off the Nazgul all the way back in the Shire. Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen beyond the Western Seas, O Light to us that wander here amid the world of woven trees, Gilthoniel, O Elbereth. Right, you remember that poem? I'm not going to read the, the whole thing because we've, uh, we've had the opportunity to discuss this poem before in an earlier session of There and Back Again. Then, right at the beginning of book two, we get the second point of comparison. We get the, uh, the actual reference to the Hall of Fire here. They got up and withdrew quietly into the shadows and made for the doors. Sam they left behind, fast asleep, still with a smile on his face. In spite of his delight in Bilbo's company, Frodo felt a tug of regret as they passed out of the Hall of Fire. Even as they stepped over the threshold, a single clear voice roll, rose in song, uh, Elbereth Gilthoniel, Silverin Penamiriel, Omenel Agrar Elanath, Nachered Palandiriel. We see here echoes of the song that Sam sings. Sam was there when that song was sung. And apparently, or possibly, he remembers it. Does Sam remember the song? Does Sam compose spontaneous poetry here in Cinderin? I don't think that he does. Here we are seeing an external force act upon Samwise Gamgee. And we know this for two reasons. We know this because the voices are credited as external in the first instance, right? Uh, even as Sam himself crouched, looking at her, this is as Shiloh is, is rising over him, seeing his death in her eyes, a thought came to him as if some remote voice had spoken. This voice from outside of him says, hey, but the file, though. Galadriel, he said faintly. 
I'm wondering if it is Galadriel's voice that he hears there. And then he heard voices far off but clear. The crying of the elves as they walked under the stars in the beloved shadows of the Shire. Hey, that's Gildor and his buddies all the way back from the Shire when they drove off the Nazgul. And the music of the elves as it came through his sleep in the Hall of Fire in the House of Elrond. That's the passage that we just read. That actually happened in the story. That was the thing that we saw. Gilthoniel uh, Elbreth. Then his tongue was loosed and his voice cried in a language which he did not know. He cries out this invocation to Elbereth. And then we get the most condemning, the most, the most resolute beat in this scene. And with that, he staggered to his feet and was Samwise the Hobbit Hamfast son again. He had not been Samwise Gamgee. Just for a moment, something else had passed through him, had moved through him. Now, we don't, in The Lord of the Rings, talk about the origin of goodness. We don't really talk about where this this virtue comes from, this desire of the universe to manifest apparently spontaneously goodness in all instances, where that comes from. We, in this series and, and in conversations surrounding the text, can credit Iluvatar, we can credit God, we can credit the intrusion of the Valar, the, the, the divine and, and immortal beings which uh, helped create the world way back when. We can talk about the Maya, the lesser beings of the same order. We can talk about just the, the, the bending of the universe toward justice and goodness. We can talk about an actual manifest goodness, but we don't ever really anchor that in the story, right? We look to the West, we talk about the divine wind of the dwarves back in The Hobbit, but that is pretty much it. This is one of the very rare moments when an invocation is actually laid upon the world, right? The invocation is, is rewarded with some immediate consequence. And it's interesting that this is associated with Elbereth. Elbereth is the Sindarin name for Varda, who we don't know yet, but we will know when we get to the Silmarillion. She is, uh, she is queen of the Valar. She is one of the most powerful beings who has ever existed. Lived is even a strange word for her, but she is extremely, extremely powerful. Um, she is the most loved and revered of all of the Valar among the elves, and they traditionally do call upon her in times of woe, in times of hardship. In their deepest darkness, they will call out to, to the Star Kindler. They will call out to Elbereth Gilthoniel. And there is an interesting idea here that Sam has been in some way inspired. And I want to kind of hold on to this idea as we look through the actual, the, the, uh, the titular choices of Master Samwise as we move through the rest of this chapter, because there is now a force moving within Sam that is not wholly Sam. We're going to study that in just a moment. And I wanted to talk a little about, about this idea of inspiration, right? Because inspiration comes from the Latin inspirare, meaning to blow into or to breathe upon. And it was for the longest time, for, for 500 years in English at least, used to mean the breath of God, the, the, infu the taking into oneself, the infusion into oneself of the breath of God, of, of the spirit of God, that inspiration was not some some rational or sub-rational thing. It was not some creative thing. It was the direct blessing of God. It was a, a granting of greater wisdom, the bestowing of a moment of greater wisdom or insight or acuity or, or discernment upon an individual, the, the direct intervention of God. And I don't think that we can do that in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. I don't think that we can credit Iluvatar with this kind of direct inspiration, but maybe we can credit Varda with this. Maybe we can credit Elbereth Gilthoniel herself with this. We'll talk more about that as we move into the uh, as we move into the um, the study of the Silmarillion when we are done with the Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, let me see here in the chat. 
Are we talking about Galadriel? Yes, uh, Galadriel and the... Uh... Oh, Tom asking, Hamfast's son, is this the first time we get Sam described in Heroic Register? Yes, it is. He's not Samwise, son of Hamfast, but he's he's awfully close to that. And Tom, I think that's a really great observation. We've done this with, uh, you know, gosh, with, with everyone at some point or another, but we've done it with, with Pippin and we've done it with Merry and we've done it, of course, with, with Frodo, Frodo, son of Drogo, as Faramir repeatedly calls him through their, uh, through their little dalliance in Athelion there. Yes, this, I think, is the first time that we've had this from Sam. No longer Samwise Gamgee, but Samwise the Hobbit Hamfast's son again. He returns to himself. And look at this fury that he unleashes. Now come, you filthy cried. You've hurt my master, you brute, and you'll pay for it. We're going on, but we'll settle with you first. Come on and taste it again. That is pretty serious. That is pretty serious right there. And of course, I'm just now realizing that we didn't talk on the previous slide here. I wanted to call this out because this too is going to be important later. Sam did not wait to wonder what was to be done or whether he was brave or loyal or filled with rage. He sprang forward with a yell and seized his master's sword in his left hand. Then he charged. Sam is not... Not still wholly conscious yet, right? So when we're talking about Samwise being Hamfast's son again, there is a possible interpretation that doesn't just rely upon the the inspiration of, of Varda here for him. Here's the point, right? In this slide, when we see, and with that he staggered to his feet and was Samwise the Hobbit Hamfast's son again, at what point did he stop being Samwise? At what point did he stop being Hamfast's son? At what point did he stop being all that he is and became a fragment of what he was? Was it when he grasped the file and uttered this Sindarin, this Sindarin invocation? Or was it when he turned his back on Shelob and raced after Gollum with the intent to kill him, when, when he was consumed with this desire for vengeance? Is that the point at which he stopped being Sam? Or is, was he overtaken by, by this, uh, this invocation here? It's an interesting and open question. Yeah, Lynn's saying, when the fury overtook him. Yeah, yeah. Fina's saying, so Frodo was already unconscious? I don't remember much, much of this chapter somehow. Well... Let's get to it, shall we? Because um, this is the slide that I have uh, that I have rather heartbreakingly entitled "Wake Up, Mr. Frodo." Shelob was gone, and whether she lay long in her lair, nursing her malice and her misery, and in slow years of darkness healed herself from within, rebuilding her clustered eyes until, with hunger like death, she spun once more her dreadful snares in the mountains of shadow. This tale does not tell. Sam was left alone, wearily as the evening of the nameless land fell upon the place of battle. He crawled back to his master. Master, dear master, he said, but Frodo did not speak. As he had run forward, eager, rejoicing to be free, Shelob with hideous speed had come behind and with one swift stroke had stung him in the neck. He lay now pale and heard no voice and did not move. Master, dear master, said Sam, and through a long silence waited, listening in vain. Then, as quickly as he could, he cut away the binding cords and laid his head upon Frodo's breast into his mouth, but no stir of life could he find, nor feel the faintest flutter of the heart. Often he chafed his master's hands and feet and touched his brow, but all were cold. Frodo! Master Frodo! he called. Don't leave me alone here. It's your Sam calling. Don't go where I can't follow. Wake up, Mr. Frodo! Oh, wake up, Frodo, me dear, me dear! Wake up! Then anger surged over him, and he ran about his master's body in a rage, stabbing the air and smiting the stones and shouting challenges. Presently he came back, and bending looked at Frodo's face, pale beneath him in the dusk and suddenly he saw that he was in the picture that was revealed to him in the mirror of Galadriel and Lorien, Frodo with a pale face laying fast asleep under a great dark cliff, or fast asleep he had thought then. He's dead, he said, not asleep, dead. And as he said it, as if the words had set the venom to, his work, to its work again, it seemed to him that the hue of his face grew livid green. And then black despair came down on him, and Sam bowed to the ground and drew his grey hood over his head, and night came into his heart. 
and he knew no more. Tina quoting, it's your Sam calling, oh my God. And Angela saying, don't go where I can't follow, buckets of tears. Yeah, yeah. Frodo is bound by Shelob when Sam returns from, from pursuing Gollum. When, when Sam attacks Shelob, Frodo is bound and constricted, and it is only as Shelob is leaving that she extends her stinger and, and hits Frodo in the neck, and that venom is what takes him here. It is that venom that, well, kills him. Frodo is dead now. This is where we are in the story. And you'll note the absolute breaking apart of, of Sam here. Sam does something that he does extraordinarily rarely. And here he does it freely, apparently without any kind of consciousness at all. Master, dear master, he says twice. And then as he's listening for breath, as he's listening for the beat of Frodo's heart, he chafed his master's hand and feet and touched his brow, but all were cold. Look at what he says specifically. Frodo. Mr. Frodo, he called, omitting the title for maybe the first time in the entire book. I need to go back and double check and make sure, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time that he calls him simply Frodo. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, he called, don't leave me alone here. It's your Sam calling. Don't go where I can't follow. Wake up, Mr. Frodo. Oh, wake up, Frodo. Me dear, me dear, wake up. It is not death or darkness here that frightens Sam Gamgee. It is being unable to follow Frodo. It is being unable to serve his master. It is being unable to stand with his master through to the bitter end. Then we get the surging of anger. We get this brilliant and vivid scene of Sam hewing at the air and shouting challenges at the sky and just getting all of this rage and fury out of his body and then coming back to Frodo again realizing that this is the vision that he was granted back in Lorien. And then we get the realization itself. He, he actually speaks aloud the words. He's dead, he said, not asleep, dead. And as he said it, as if the words had set the venom to its work again, it seemed to him that the hue of the face grew livid green. This is not true, I think. This is not objectively true. If we were there with Sam, well, A, we'd be hugging him first. B, we might be showing him a copy of The Lord of the Rings to tell him how all of this works out. But C, we, I don't think, would see the hue of Frodo's face change. As he said it, as the words had, as if the words had set the venom to its work again, it seemed to him, as if the words had set the venom to its work again, it seemed to him. We're getting something that is enormously subjective here. This is Sam's experience. And what is it that has changed? Why is, why is the hue of Frodo's, chase, uh, of Frodo's face excuse me, now growing livid green? Because Sam has lost hope. We're going to be talking about hope in just a moment. We're going to be talking about the fact that Sam never had any to begin with. But now, somehow, the hope that he never had has been extinguished. And then black despair came down on him. Despair being, of course, the absence of hope. Black despair came down on him and Sam bowed to the ground and drew his gray hood over his head and night came into his heart and he knew no more. Night entered his heart, C-Star quotes. Great way to put it. Yes, good, good. It's, it's incredibly powerful. It's, it's overwhelming in its immediacy, right? The, the, emotional register of the last two chapters, I suppose, of the the fear of Shelob's lair and then the fear of the, the first attack and the driving back of Shelob with the file of Galadriel and the acknowledgement, the kind of implicit acknowledgement within the frame of the story that, oh yeah, this is how fantasy stories work out. Our hero earned a boon from an earlier act of valor. Frodo was courageous in Lothlorien. Frodo was courageous with Galadriel. He was virtuous with Galadriel and he earned a boon. He earned the file of Galadriel that of course is going to unlock this puzzle here at the end of his quest. This is the D&D &D approach to fantasy storytelling. Except, of course, that it's not. 
That's not how it plays out. That's not what happens. Yes, Sam drives Shilob back. Shilob was gone, and whether she lay long in her lair, nursing her malice and her misery, this tale does not tell. It doesn't matter what happened to Shilob, because the harm has been done. The damage has already been done. The blackness, though, passes. When at last the blackness passed, Sam looked up and the shadows were still about him. But for how many minutes or hours the world had gone dragging on, he could not tell. He was still in the same place, and still his master lay beside him dead. The mountains had not crumbled, nor the earth fallen into ruin. "'What shall I do? What shall I do?' he said. "'Did I come all this way with him for nothing?' And then he remembered his own voice speaking words that at the time he did not understand himself at the beginning of their journey. "'I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand.' "'But what can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied at the top of the mountains, and go home? Or go on? Go on?' he repeated, and for a moment doubt and fear shook him. Go on? Is that what I've got to do? And leave him? Then at last he began to weep, and going to Frodo he composed his body and folded his cold hands upon his breast and wrapped his cloak about him. Then he laid his own sword at one side and the staff that Faramir had given him at the other. If I'm to go on, he said, then I must take your sword by your leave, Mr. Frodo, but I'll put this one to lie by you as it lay by the old king in the barrow. And you've got your beautiful mithril coat from old Mr. Bilbo and your star glass, Mr. Frodo. You did lend it to me and I'll need it, for I'll be always in the dark now. It's too good for me and the lady gave it to you, but maybe she'd understand. Do you understand, Mr. Frodo? I've got to go on. We're going to look a little more closely at Sam's motivation on the next slide, in, in the second half of this uh, this internal conflict, this internal conversation, this uh, this duologue here contained within the breast of Samwise Gamgee. But there are a couple of resonances here which we absolutely have to acknowledge. The first and most obvious, of course, in the choices of Master Samwise is that in this chapter, we see Sam echoing the internal division that we saw earlier with Gollum. That, that Gollum and Smeagol slinker and stinker conversation that we've talked about at, at great length is now, in some senses, replicated within Sam Gamgee. But it's a very different kind of conversation because Sam doesn't have a good side and a bad side. A bad side, excuse me. Sam has two different good sides. He has two different impulses. Or, I suppose, he said, opening up the topic of conversation for the next slide, does he? With whom is Sam conversing? in just a moment. We'll get to that. We're also here echoing Aragorn's decision with uh, Legolas and Gimli to lay out the body of Boromir. Remember back at Parth Gallon when we find Boromir fallen and Merry and Pippin are gone and Sam and Frodo are gone and the world has turned to ruin and Aragorn is lamenting all of his terrible decisions and the mountains had not crumbled nor the earth fallen into ruin, right? It's probably applicable there too. And he can't decide what it is that he's supposed to do, but he acknowledges immediately, well, first, we've got to tend to Boromir. For, th that's not even a question, right? The choice is not, do we go after Merry and Pippin? Do we go after Frodo and Sam? Or do we pause a moment and take care of Boromir? No, it's we take care of Boromir's body first, and then we make the choice. And Sam here doing the same thing. And in a similar kind of circumstance, though without the benefit of the Anduin, without the benefit of the great river of Gondor that can protect Boromir's body from the ravages of, well, orcs or wild beasts or who knows what there at Parth Gallon. Here, Sam's options are limited, limited to two, I suppose. He could presumably find enough loose rock to build a cairn over Frodo. 
but he can't do that. There, there maybe isn't enough loose rock, or he doesn't think to do it, or that's not the Hobbit tradition. Instead, perhaps inspired by the uh, the Barrow Blade that he is laying down here next to Frodo, the Barrow Blade given to him, of course, by Tom Bombadil after the rescue on the Barrow Downs, all the way back in the first book of the Fellowship of the Ring. He lays out that blade and lays Frodo out in state. He he orders Frodo's body with a great show of a great show of respect. This is how things are properly done. And then he has to go on. And how does the idea of going on come to him? What can I do? This is repeated twice, in fact. What shall I do? What shall I do? Did I come all this way for him for nothing? That's the, that's the abstract question here, right? That's the rhetorical question that Sam is summoning forth. But what can I do? The can, the shift from shall to can there, indicating a different kind of resolve, a different kind of agency. What shall I do is open-ended. It is, it is unfixed. What can I do is different. It is looking at the limited constraints in which one finds oneself. What can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied at the top of the mountains, and go home. Or go on? Go on, he repeated. And it's not, you know, the... the, the the punctuation here is clear, but perhaps a little ambiguous, arguably ambiguous. Not leave Mr. Frodo dead unburied at the top of the mountains and go home. Thought one, leave Mr. Frodo dead unburied at the top of the mountains and go home. Or possibility two, go on. No, I don't think that's the question that Sam is asking. Not leave Mr. Frodo dead unburied at the top of the mountains. That is the fact. That is step one in anything that happens next. I'm not going to do that. And then go home or go on. Go on, he repeated, and for a moment doubt and fear shook him. Go on, is that what I've got to do and leave him? Here we're seeing another possible intrusion of this external voice. Is Sam arguing with himself or is Sam arguing with, with someone else? And we get the echo here all the way back to the beginning of the book. I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. Asking Frodo for understanding of something that Sam clarifies, or that the narrator clarifies here, Sam himself did not understand at the time. Sam knew vaguely that he had a purpose in, in this journey, that he had a reason for being here, but he doesn't know what it is. I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. But what can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead. I'm buried at the top of the mountains and go home or go on, go on, go on. Is that what I've got to do? And leave him? Then at last he began to weep, and going to Frodo, he composes his body. He folds his cold hands upon his breast and wraps his cloak around him. He gets the the... The composition of Frodo's body here, right. If I'm to go on, he said, then I must take your sword. By your leave, Mr. Frodo, and I'll put this one to lie by you as it lay by the old king in the barrow. And you've got your beautiful mithril coat from old Mr. Bilbo and your star glass. You've got the blade that was given to you by Tom Bombadil that is, is representative of our adventures. You've got the mithril coat given to you by Bilbo that is representative of his adventure. And you've got the star glass, the file of light. But I need to take that too. I am girding myself now with armament. I am taking upon myself, Mr. Frodo, if I have to go on, I am taking those things which belong in this kind of story. I am taking the elven things, the parts of our story that I can leave behind, I will leave behind because I should leave them behind. But these things I'm going to need if I'm going to push on. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. Yes. Um, good. Shane's saying, if it's a rationalization and the ring is suggesting it, then it's another example of evil destroying itself. It doesn't know that Sam will not be corrupted. We haven't talked about the ring yet, but this is a really interesting thought, right? Where does this come from? We've just had this intrusion of, if not something 
specifically divine, if not something specifically associated with Elbereth or with Galadriel or or with other you know existent forces of good in the world, something that is at least good, something that is at least well intentioned. It was not the ring. I think we can be pretty sure that suggested raising the star glass and, and warding off Shelob. And certainly it isn't the ring that, that brought an elven invocation to, to Sam's tongue. That doesn't seem to match anything that we've seen of the ring thus far. And certainly even the resolution there, right? Coming back to oneself after being influenced by the ring doesn't feel like that. Think of Boromir being influenced by the ring back at Parthgallon and, and how he returns to himself. He's mindful of the manipulation. Sam is not. So I don't credit the the use of the Starglass, the use of the file of Galadriel to be the result of the manipulation of the ring itself. But I'm buying time here as I move on to the next slide. Perhaps there is some indication of the presence of the ring. He looked on the bright point of the sword. He thought of the places behind where there was a black brink and an empty fall into nothingness. There was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. That was not what he had set out to do. What am I to do then? He cried again, and now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer. See it through. Another lonely journey, and the worst. What? Me? Alone? Go to the crack of doom and all? He quailed still, but the resolve grew. What? Me? Take the ring from him? The council gave it to him? But the answer came at once. And the council gave him companions, so that the errand should not fail. And you were the last of all the company. The errand must not fail. I wish I wasn't the last, he groaned. I wish old Gandalf were here or somebody. Why am I left all alone to make up my mind? I'm sure to go wrong. And it's not for me to go taking the ring, putting myself forward. But you haven't put yourself forward. You've been put forward. And as for not being the right and proper person, why, Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Bilbo. They didn't choose themselves. Oh, well, I must make up my own mind. I will make it up. But I'll be sure to go wrong. That'd be Sam Gamgee all over. Let me see now. If we're found here where Mr. Frodo is found and that thing's on him, well, the enemy will get it. And that'll be the end of us, of Lorien and Rivendell and the Shire and all. And there's no time to lose or it'll be the end anyway. The war has begun and more than likely things are all going the enemy's way already. No chance to go, excuse me, no chance to go back with it to get advice or permission. No, it's sit here till they come and kill me over my master's body and gets it or take it and go. He drew a deep breath. And take it, it is. I altered my voice slightly as I was reading that because I wanted to distinguish between these two sides of Sam, right? Is someone else speaking aloud in this moment? No. These voices are coming from Sam. But I do not think that that means that Sam is the only speaker here. I do not think that even in the Slinker and Stinker, Gollum and Smeagol sense that Sam is having a conversation with only himself, that this is Sam externalizing his inner conflict. I don't think it's something as simple as that for a couple of reasons. There was, uh, that was to do nothing. So he's considering suicide. He looked on the bright point of his sword. He thought of the places behind where there was a black brink and an empty fall into nothingness. There was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. That was not what he had set out to do. He is thinking about killing himself right there, right? He's thinking about falling on the point of that sword or throwing himself off the brink. That is, that's thought one, and he sets it aside immediately. No, that's nothing. That's not even grief. That, that's the end of everything, and we must persevere. That is not what, we, what he had set out to do. What am I to do then? He cried again, and now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer. See it through. Another lonely journey and the worst. Where is that phrase coming from? In whose voice is that phrase, another lonely journey and the worst? Is that Sam thinking that? Is that Sam kind of 
internally vocalizing another voice, another, another presence, because he gets this answer again. And I wouldn't necessarily be paying this much attention to it if not for the fact that we have seen very clearly at the time that he raises the star glass a voice coming into Sam from without, right? He cries this, this, this open question, what am I to do then? And now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer, see it through. What? Me alone go to the crack of doom and all? He quailed still, but his resolve grew. What? Me take the ring from him? The council gave it to him. This repetition of what, these specific questions, seem to be responses to things that we can't hear, to, to suggestions that we are not privy to. What? Me alone go to the crack of doom and all? He quailed still, but the resolve grew. What? Me take the ring from him? The council gave it to him. And then we get the actual answer. The answer came at once. It came, didn't emerge. He didn't think of it. He didn't conceive of it. He didn't know it already. It came at once, implying again that external voice out there in the world. And the council gave him companions so that the errand should not fail. And you, note the pronoun, you are the last of all the company. The errand must not fail. Is Sam thinking of this himself? And I am the last of the company. The errand must not fail. This doesn't feel to me like Sam. This doesn't read like Sam. It doesn't have that that Samwise Gamgee intonation. It doesn't have the pacing. It doesn't have the meter. It doesn't feel like Sam's dialogue at all. It feels like a quieter, softer voice. It doesn't even feel necessarily like Gandalf's voice, right? It doesn't feel like the intrusion of Gandalf to Frodo or upon Frodo back at Amon Hen, as, as Frodo is caught between the voice and the eye, right? Take it off, you fool! That's a Gandalf line right there. No one is called a fool in this whole page. I wish I wasn't the last, he groaned. Uh, and you'll note, too, uh, this is a, a very close detail here, but you'll see the, uh, the inverted commas delineating the attributed text here. It is, it's rare now, it's, it's done uncommonly now, but it was done very often in Tolkien's time and occurs numerous times throughout this book, particularly when we get, you know, go look at the Council of Elrond and you'll see this happen all the time, where we take paragraph breaks in attributed dialogue. And the way of delineating that is that you open the dialogue with an inverted comma. And then when you get to the end of the paragraph, you do not close it, you leave it open. So you just have the period at the end of the paragraph, then you start the new paragraph with another opening uh, inverted comma. That indicates that the same speaker is still talking. That's how we attribute dialogue spread across multiple paragraphs. We do it all the time in this book. But you'll note here that we don't do it. The council gave it to him, closed inverted comma, but the answer came at once, open inverted comma, and the council gave him companions so the errand should not fail, and you were the last of the company, the errand must not fail, close inverted comma, open inverted comma on the next line, I wish I wasn't the last. If Sam is technically speaking to himself and... Again, with another author, I wouldn't necessarily think twice about this, but this is Professor Tolkien, and he pays very close attention to this stuff. That is clearly a distinct and separate voice. It is something else. It's not just Sam working through this material himself. This is, this is something else. Yeah. Um, let me see here. We're, we're having some interesting conversations here in the chat. Um, Oh, Seastar saying, uh, I like Sam realizing he's, he's being put forward, not putting himself forward. Frodo is the good master and Sam is the good servant, uh, both uh, good master and good servant, given the initial caps there. But sometimes the world doesn't care about these roles. Yes, that's excellent. Very good. Very good. Um, okay, let's keep pushing onward here. I think we've got the, um, the, the, the bulk of this laid out and I'm a little short of time and we really need to finish this up. If you have more questions, I suppose, about Sam's internal division here, then please get in touch and I'll, I'll maybe take some questions on this next time. Um, 
Yes, you haven't put yourself forward, you've been put forward, and as for not being the right and proper person, why Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Bilba. This is the point at which Sam's speech starts to kind of trend back toward where he was, right? This starts to trend back into a more naturalistic Sam delivery. Let me see now. If we're found here where Mr. Frodo's found and the thing on him, well, the enemy will get it, and that's the end of all, uh, the end of, all of us, of Lorien, of Rivendell, of the Shire, and all. There's no time to lose, or it'll be the end anyway. The war has begun, and more than likely things are going the enemy's way already. No chance to, uh, to go back with it to get advice or permission. No, it's sitting here till they come and kill me over my master's body and gets it or take it and go he drew a deep breath then take it it is this is the moment of resolution and this is why i don't think it's the ring this is why i don't think that the ring is exerting an influence over sam here because the ring does not (laughs) minor spoilers when we get to the beginning of return of the king we're actually going to see the ring give Give Sam a perspective on the future. Give Sam a perspective on his potential power, right? The ring is going to do the thing that the ring does to Sam at the beginning of The Return of the King, and it is going to feel very different from this. But even without that, it, it is a problem. It's not the ring. It's not the one ring. It's not the precious. It's it. And I don't feel as though in the absence of any kind of inflation of Sam's importance, quite the contrary, in fact, right? We don't argue, as for not being the right and proper person, why Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Bilbo, they didn't choose themselves, right? People aren't chosen for this. People aren't special. That's not why Frodo has the ring. That's not why Bilbo has the ring. It's not because we're greater. That's clearly untrue. Sam rejects that narrative completely out of hand, and the ring has no purchase there. The ring has no anchor point. Further still, well, let's look at Sam putting on the ring, shall we? Only a few steps, and now only a few more, and he would be going down and would never see that high place again. And then suddenly he heard cries and voices. He stood still as stone, orc voices. They were behind him and before him. A noise of tramping feet and harsh shouts. Orcs were coming up the cleft on the far side and some, from some entry to the tower, perhaps. Tramping feet and shouts behind. He wheeled round. He saw small red lights, torches winking away below there as they issued from the tunnel. At last the hunt was up. The red eye of the tower had not been blind. He was caught. Now the flicker of approaching torches and the clink of steel ahead was very near. In a minute they would reach the top and be on him. He had taken too long in making up his mind and now it was no good. How could he escape or save himself or save the ring? The ring. He was not aware of any thought or decision. He simply found himself drawing out the chain and taking the ring in his hand. The head of the orc company appeared in the cleft right before him. Then he put it on. The world changed and a single moment of time was filled with an hour of thought. At once he was aware that hearing was sharpened while sight was dimmed, but otherwise than in Shelob's lair. All things about him now were not dark, but vague, while he himself was there in a grey, hazy world, alone like a small, black, solid rock, and the ring weighing down his left hand was like an orb of hot gold. He did not feel invisible at all, but horribly and uniquely visible, and he knew that somewhere an eye was searching for him. He heard the crack of stone and the murmur of water far off in Morgul Vale, and down away under the rock the bubbling misery of Shelob, groping lost in some blind passage, and voices in the dungeons of the tower, and the cries of the orcs as they came out of the tunnel, and deafening, roaring in his ears the crash of the feet and the rending clamor of the orcs before him. He shrank against the cliff, but they marched up like a phantom company, grey distorted figures in a mist, only dreams of fear with pale flames in their hands, and they passed him by. He cowered, trying to creep away into some cranny and to hide. He listened. The orcs from the tunnel and the others marching down had sighted one another, and both parties were now hurrying and shouting. He heard them both clearly, and he understood what they said. Perhaps the ring gave understanding of tongues, or simply understanding, especially of the servants of Sauron, its maker, so that if he gave heed, he understood and translated the thought to himself. Certainly the ring had grown greatly in power as it approached the places of its forging, but one thing it did not confer, and that was courage. 
At present, Sam still thought only of hiding, of lying low till all was quiet again, and he listened anxiously. He could not tell how near the voices were. The words seemed almost in his ears. This is completely unlike any other description that we get of the ring. And before we talk about the consequence of putting on the ring here, I suppose we should talk about the ring itself. Does the ring motivate Sam to put it on? Or is he once more nudged by another external force? Is he once more nudged by something greater, something grander, something more virtuous? Sea Star observing with a certain, uh, a certain wry observation here. How handy, ha, that the ring allowed Sam to understand the orc's speech. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it convenient? But also true of Sauron, right? Also true of, well, the ability to pierce the veil, I suppose. The ring empowers the wearer in innumerable ways. It can be used to dominate. It can be used to peer into the minds of others. And so it's not too much of a stretch that it can be used to understand foreign speech. Though, again, it hasn't done before, but it is now closer to Baradur, it is closer to the point of its origin, it is closer to Sauron, and Sauron's power has waxed in the intervening months. We've talked about that with regard to the power of the Nazgul, of course. Why are the Nazgul so powerful now when they were so relatively, emphatically relatively weak back in the Shire at the beginning of the book? Well, because Sauron is now titanic. Sauron is now incredibly, incredibly powerful. That is, that seems at least to be, um, to be an unavoidable conclusion, seems to be confirmed here by the narrative itself. So what compels Sam to put on the ring? He had taken too long in making up his mind and now it was no good. How could he escape or save himself or save the ring? The ring. He was not aware of any thought or decision. He simply found himself drawing out the chain and taking the ring in his hand. The head of the orc company appeared in the cleft right before him. Then he put it on. On the one hand, of course, it is tempting to look at this and credit the ring with a great deal of agency. Firstly, he refers to it as the ring. He's not talking about it. The fact that he even thinks in terms of saving the ring. How could he escape or save himself or save the ring? Yeah, that does feel like like something that comes from the ring itself, right? Or save the ring, the ring. He was not aware of any thought or decision. He simply found himself drawing out the chain. But it's the absence of thought and decision that makes me wonder here. Because previously, when the ring has enacted its will, when the ring has tried to, to charm either its bearer or, you know, someone nearby who it wants... It has offered rationalization. It has given thought, whether that is, ah, but you could use me. You could use me to tear down the walls of Barador and to vanquish the foe. Or, but you're still in the Shire and it's safe and Gandalf didn't really know and Bilbo used the ring plenty of times and there's really no danger here. The ring doesn't generally just take action or, or coerce immediate action. The ring persuades more than it compels. It is only after Frodo is deep, deep in the shadow, after Frodo has been all but completely consumed by the influence of the ring and the, the wound that he sustained back at Weathertop, it is only long after that fact that Frodo begins to not even fight the ring. And even then it is suggested that that is because he is internalizing the ring's narrative here. I'm not sure. What do, what do you guys make of that? What, what, uh, what sounds good? Yeah, a very good Kant observing that the ring is both a magical and a narrative device. Yes, good. Doyen Eric saying, it seems like Sam's intent um, to take the ring is the only time the ring was taken out of greed, uh, not out of greed, but of valor. Yes, I mean, 
okay, we can talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the return of the king too, and must talk about this at the beginning of the return of the king too, but you are absolutely right. This is a completely different kind of taking ownership of the ring. And this may be why the ring's influence over Sam is so completely different than it was over Frodo or Bilbo, right? Frodo takes the ring out of necessity, a kind of necessity, yes, but it has been left to him. It has been passed to him. He is the ring bearer, even if he decides not to go to Rivendell with the ring back in, in, in chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring. Bilbo takes it up also by accident, right? He doesn't mean to take the ring. He doesn't take it out of malice the way that Gollum took it out of malice, or even arguably the way that Isildur took it from Sauron, not out of malice at least, but, but deliberately out of a sense of righteousness, right? Bilbo finds it by accident and picks it up, and that preserves him. That that stems the corruptive influence. The finding it by accident rather than the taking it out, uh, taking it from greed or desire or anger. And of course, as Gandalf says, again, back in chapter two, we're just mentioning a lot of chapter two here uh, in this week's reading. Here as we close in on the end of the two towers and close in on the end of the story. I guess we're, we're looking back to the beginning. Uh, back in chapter two, Gandalf credits Bilbo's act of pity, that famous act of pity where he preserves Gollum's life as being one of the contributing factors to Bilbo's resistance to the ring. Now, Frodo was given it. But then he took up the, the, the cause, took up the quest consciously and, and with full knowledge. Sam has not been given it. It is just there. It is still in Frodo's possession, even though Frodo is, as far as Sam is concerned, dead at this point. That puts a different inflection on this. He is picking it up out of courage. And again, differently, right? He knows, unlike Bilbo, unlike Frodo, Sam knows what it is. Sam knows how incredibly dangerous it is. Sam knows how evil it is. Sam knows what happens to bearers of the ring. He is the only person in history, with the possible exception of Sauron, I suppose, to take up the ring fully cognizant of what it is. Isildur did not know. Gollum did not know. Bilbo did not know. Frodo did not know. Sam knows, at least to the extent that a hobbit can know such things, right? Sam picks it up knowing it to be the evil thing that it is, and then knowing it to be the evil thing that it is, he also puts it on, feeling feeling vulnerable now in this moment. He has to hide from the orcs, yes, but in the hiding from the orcs, he is exposing himself to the littlest eye. He is exposing himself to the eye that seeks him, yeah. Let me see here. Um, Shane observing, Shagrat would probably not be so noble. Oh, well, no, that's a very fair point. Yes. Um, let's take a look. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. I am, I am out of time, I'm afraid. I, I did say right at the beginning of today's session that this would be a shorter session, and I know that we're going to delve into the, uh, the Q&A session next week. So what we'll do is either cover the last couple of slides that I have here from this reading next week, or we'll... Maybe we will just do a live session. Maybe I'll just prep some of the Q&A stuff. We'll do a live session after all. Hey, who knows? It's all fluid. You can head on over to pointnorthmedia.com where you can subscribe to the newsletter or you can check out the uh, the calendar that is linked to from the podcast page. As soon as the site is back up, you'll be able to do that and keep up to date with all the latest schedule announcements and everything good that is happening over there. Let me take down this... Uh, Take down this slide. I, I can't quite get into Shagrat and Gorbag just yet. Let me see the questions that we have here. Angela asks, putting on the ring darkens Sam's sight. Did it darken Gollum's sight when he puts it on? What does Gollum see or experience when he wears the ring? Do we know? We do not know, Angela. Uh, we don't know exactly what it, uh, what influence the ring has over Gollum. Uh, we do know that it makes him invisible, right? We, we do know that it does the things that the ring does. It doesn't have a special case for Gollum. We know that it makes him invisible and that he used that invisibility to hunt goblins deep beneath the Misty Mountains. But we don't exactly know what other consequences it had. 
this is at least consistent with our understanding of the ring in the context of the Lord of the Rings, right? It's, it's difficult to imagine that had Bilbo been wearing the one ring for weeks at a time while he was hanging out in Thranduil's halls back in The Hobbit, that in the book he would never have mentioned. And also I couldn't see a damn thing and it was weird and, and awful. Like, it's not quite the Peter Jackson ring vision that we get in the movies, but it's pretty close, right? This accounting here is, is pretty close. Everything is hazy and indistinct and, and sounds are more acute and, and your senses are changed. You are no longer connected to the real physical world quite as powerfully as once you were. So we don't know exactly what happens to Gollum and the transition from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings the fictional transition within the frame, right? Bilbo's first book versus the extension of that story into The Lord of the Rings or the transition between J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, either whichever way you frame that distinction, that accounts for our change in understanding of the One Ring there too. This seems consistent though with what Frodo reported back at Weathertop, what the narrator gives us of Frodo's experience back at Weathertop, of course, too. The the falling away of the world and these bright, vivid characters, you know, the the Nazgul now in in white and, and... helmed with crowns and and the different perspective that we get on the world that seems to match a little bit but yes i'm confident in asserting that given that we are now very close to barador given that we are now very close to sauron given that sauron's power is now practically at its peak and therefore by inference the experience of wearing the ring is at its most dramatic now for sam that that when frodo put it on you know back with Tom Bombadil, he didn't experience this because the ring wasn't then what it is now. I I do think it's on a continuum and I think it's completely consistent. That's my read of it anyway. I don't think that this is distinct to Sam, though. If you guys have different uh, perspectives on that, I would love to know. Uh, Yeah. Um, Let me see here. Lily asking, is it also possible... Is it also possible more strongly pulling them into the Wraith world as Sauron gets stronger? Oh, is it also possibly more strongly pulling them into the Wraith world as Sauron gets stronger? Bilbo did not have the perception changes because the ring wasn't as strong. Yes, Lily, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's uh, I think that's completely true. Now, is this a consequence of Sauron's abstract strength? Has he been quietly leveling up in Barad-dûr and that's why the ring is more powerful? Is it a consequence of his influence? Is it the shadow that has now fallen across Middle-earth and that is why the ring is stronger? Is it simply proximity? Who knows? Is it is it despair? Is it is it fear and despair and hopelessness, possibly, or some combination of all of these things? But yes, I think one of the only ways that you can make the ring work and the Nazgul work too in the context of the entirety of the Lord of the Rings is to acknowledge that there is an increase in their power level the closer that we get to Mordor, the closer that we get really functionally to the end of the book. Yeah. All right, you guys, I'm sorry for this shorter session. I hope you have enjoyed this discussion. Uh, Variag of Kant has also asked here in the chat, can we imagine Shagrat and Gorbag uh, speaking slang-ridden RP, Oxbridge English, or should we make it Cockney or Scouse? Always Cockney to me. I don't know why. Always Cockney to me, as we'll see next week when we actually get to meet Shagrat and Gorbag. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to that may not be quite the right way to put it, but uh, we'll do the best that we can. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I will talk to you all uh, next week. Stay tuned, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when we'll... uh exactly when we'll do the podcast next week whether it will be entirely pre-recorded whether it will be a live discussion we'll see if you have thoughts on that email me uh, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com or head on over to the Point North Media forum pointnorthmedia.com slash forum the following week though I can be absolutely sure that we will talk about the first chapter of book five of the Lord of the Rings the first chapter of the Return of the King Minas Tirith we're going to do that at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on March the 22nd. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that no matter what happens next week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!